Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Callan FM. With me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And in a week when there have been warnings from some quarters that allowing Huawei access to the UK's critical communications network would pose a national security risk... Um, and Britain's smallest county, the county of Rutland, finally passes planning permission for its first McDonald's restaurant. Makes you wonder where they've been all these years. And Karen Brady, who we've profiled on the show before, businesswoman star of The Apprentice, has said that she resigned from the board of Sir Philip Green's Sir Philip Green's retail empire because the allegations being made against him weren't compatible with her being a feminist. We've decided to tackle what's transpired to be a huge <laughs> subject. There are, do you know there are whole museums dedicated I to this know, subject? I don't know it? what I was thinking when I said, why don't we take a look at trade unions? Yes. Well, we, we scratched the surface of trade unions. And also I, I thought I'd take a look at trade unions around the world as well, just to, to get a different perspective. But as I said, there, there are... Um, museums there are whole websites there are all sorts of resources but if I could put a quick mention in for the People's History Museum in Manchester it's the National Museum of Democracy telling the story of its development in Britain past present and future and it's an excellent free day out as well oh so if you've not been to the People's History Museum it's well worth a day even um, you could squeeze it in in an afternoon maybe and go and have a look there Um, they've got some great exhibitions uh, and a few interactive ones as well where you can dress up oh really yeah it's very good good. yeah sounds good I do like a free museum so as you you recommended trade unions Heather where did you start with your research well the reason I suggested it is because have you ever been a member of a trade union well, Heather, I, I would hasten to add that that sort of information is special category private data. Is it? It is indeed. Well, even if it, in the past? Uh, yeah. Be, oh. Membership of trade unions. Oh, right. OK. All right. Well, <laughs> but yes. I, well, I never have, <laughs> yeah. as you can probably gather. Yeah. Um, no, and obviously I'm responsible for um, data privacy in one of the organisations I work for and obviously trade union membership. And I think if you look at it from the context of other countries and issues with trade unions, yeah. you'll understand why that is such a sensitive issue. Right. I mean, I can I can understand. I mean, my experience of trade union trade unions is, is re- really stems back to, you know, when there have been very big national disputes when we think about, you know, the miners and and um, whopping, you know, on, and the, the printmakers, etc. So, um, but but I came across trade unions, or it came into my mind um, recently, somebody I knew um, who was um, being made redundant. And so they started to look at, okay. What help is available. What help yeah. is available. And the go-to was their trade union. And it's just never really been something that I've ever considered. I mean, I'm self-employed, so, I, you know, this. I, I don't think I qualify for a trade union because I'm a sole director, so I don't quite know what it would what it would give me. But um, but when I started to look at it, they're far-reaching and very broad. Yeah. And there are trade unions for all sorts of obscure um, professions, and and that in itself I found really interesting because we know a lot about you know the. Um, the general workers union teaching unions you know we hear about those unison etc but there are smaller niche ones that just completely pass me by well the the trade union movement started really i suppose you could imagine the 
um, the predecessor of the trade union movements were the guild of, of the craftsmen yeah. in, in sort of medieval times. But they, they started to, to become organised in about the 17th century, so they have been around a good while. And, and if you imagine that a guild is, a, is the medieval equivalent of it, then um, I, th- I think they sort of came into their own, their own with the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century and the, the whole re- wave of trade disputes that occurred then. Um, so there's, there's quite a long history before some of the, um, the trade union stories that we all know, you know, the miners and, and as you say, whopping and everything. Do you, have you heard of the Tollpuddle Martyrs? Oh, crikey, I remember vaguely something at school in a history lesson I should probably have been paying attention to. <laughs> yeah, 1834, if you can remember that far back, Heather. Right, no. yeah, well, it's just just before I was born. And uh, you, the Luddites, all of those sorts of things, that's all part of the trade union movement and, and, and the, the actual joining together of workers. Um, and it's it's a fascinating story, and I wanted to point people towards a couple of different websites because we're not going to go into the full history now. But um, there's one website, um, the National Archives website. Obviously, they've got a lot of information, but they've got one page that is the history of trade unions. It's li- literally one page. It's not too massive to read. So if you go to nationalarchives.gov.uk, and um, Another website called Striking Women, and I assume that means um, not women on strike, not, not hitting women. Being, yes, that w- that's unfortunate name. Yeah. And, and uh, strikingwomen.org have got um, history and definition of trade unions, and also there's a, a website called unionhistory.info, and that's got a timeline and lots of documented history as well. So if you're interested in the original documents that, that came about from different agreements with the trades unions then um, that's a great website because you can click on and see the act- um, a PDF of the actual documents as well. Okay all right that's that's interesting so um, the I guess the thing is trade unions if you're a member it only really comes into its own if there's a problem very often I mean as you know so I, I in my experience in the past you know with perhaps teachers and teaching you know there's a problem I'm going to get my union rep to attend yeah um, and they can help with you know disciplinaries and grievances and things like that but of course as a if as a collective they then have the clout to negotiate pay, working conditions, etc., um, and to offer legal and, f- and financial advice yeah. for those people who are going through challenging times um, within their their role. But it also serves for the employer, uh, yeah, because you, it's the voice of your people. So that rather than trying to second guess what five hundred people might think, you have the representation of the union, which can share that and you can perhaps nip things in the bud or prevent yourself from setting off on a, a route that everybody's just going to go mad about. So There was a really interesting article along those lines uh, in HR magazine, and uh, that it's um, entitled, What Do Good HR Union Relationships Look Like? And it, it's sort of saying that um, traditionally, employers and unions see each other as the enemy, whereas actually, if you see each other as working together, yeah. you can come up with some really good solutions. And so if you uh, if the employer treats a union as a key stakeholder and then they, they can sort of work on um, deciding jointly on creating a shared agenda and, you know, that sort of um, idea has been adopted in, in the NHS in some areas. Um, the, 
Um, the NHS employee CEO, uh, Danny Mortimer, is quoted as saying uh, that he believes the relationship between HR and the unions is now changing in the NHS, that it's become more sophisticated. And what they've done in the NHS is recognise that they've got a fundamental shared set of interests and objectives and a sense of partnership. So I, I think that was quite an interesting change from what has typically been portrayed as being a, a combative type relationship. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because and I think it's it's a classic thing, isn't it? As as we say, it's only when there's a problem that you historically that's when we hear about the union, what the union's going to say, you know, all out, you know, all that sort yeah. of strike action. And the whole point is to avoid striking. Nobody really wants to strike. Uh, it's to avoid that, but also recognise that a collective of people have clout. Yeah, I mean, you think about unison, you know, and. You, their members, you know, make up a massive proportion of the overall population of the country. So those people have power uh, as a collective. So we need to see that as a positive in terms of collaboration. Yeah, and from an employer's point of view, as you said, talking to representatives is so much easier than going and speaking to each individual yeah. employee. Yeah. It's much better for negotiations. So I did say I'd... I'd touch on unions around the world because it's not all like it is in the UK. Go on. So I I found an article in HR magazine um, and a couple of things surprised me. So in America, you can't join a union just because you decide to or for ideological reasons. You can only join a union if your workplace has a collective agreement in place with that union. So you can't just as an individual employee just decide to join a union. So you, you kind of have to have permission to join a union... In the organisation? Yeah, the union has to have permission to actually be involved in the organisation. Then um, the Nordic model, um, there's about 80% of employees are members and unions and employers have great autonomy in defining labour market roles. There's a lot to be said for these Nordic countries in the news quite a bit recently. Yeah, they are. Um, And... uh, Tony Hussard, definition, is an academic, by the way, definition of union and employee relationships as either boxing or dancing. And he says that in the Nordic countries, Germany and Holland, the relationship is dancing. We agree to disagree, but we'll dance and find a solution that suits us both. He says in other places like Latin America, there there are cases where unionists are actually killed. That serious. That's slightly extreme. Um, under French laws, unions represent employees whether they are union members or not, meaning that low membership of a union doesn't translate into low power for the union. Right. And uh, in, in France, they've got amazing bargaining power, and 90% of the workforce are covered by a collective bargaining agreement, but only 9% of employees are actually members. Compared to in the UK, it's about 25% of workers. But the difference is in France, unions are seen as a necessity to running the country. Right. And then uh, Asian countries, um, it says in this article, possibly because of the socio-economic conditions, the unions have a stronger influence to the point where industrial action is a lot heavier and the unions are a lot more aggressive in how they would approach leaders. So that, that's unions around the world, not just the UK. So very different perspectives on the value and relationship with unions. 
So other news that we've spotted this week. On Tuesday, the Gambling Commission um, put out a press release about the ban on using credit cards um, to gamble. Uh, It comes into effect on the 14th of April. And at that point, Britain's 24 million adult gamblers will not be able to use credit cards. Interesting, the press release says adult gamblers are children. Child gamblers allowed to use credit you're cards? You're not allowed, are you? No, you're no. not allowed to gamble unless you're 18, are you? No, so I, I don't know why I felt the need to put adult gamblers in the press release. Anyway, 24 million adult gamblers will not be able to use credit cards to make bets. And these rules are designed to prevent consumers from building up too much debt. And it actually sent shares in the betting companies sharply lower. Uh, I don't know if they've recovered yet, but I'm sure they will at some point. Research by the Gambling Commission... Um, classes 22% of online gamblers who use credit cards as problem gamblers. And of the 24 million gamblers, around 10.5 million gamble online. And um, the UK estimates around 800,000 Britons use credit cards to gamble. Well, we've talked talked a lot about one particular... Well, the highest paid, yeah, bet three six five. Yes, boss, yes, yes, and uh, you know, and the the amount of money that that she is paying herself, and then you start to to look at the amount of debt that people. You know, if you amassed all of that debt that people get into on credit cards, um, yeah, it's a bit of a disconnect, isn't it? Really, it is rather. And news out today as well. I, I just read on Reuters is that um, credit card use has risen over the last few months. So um, let's hope it hasn't all been on gambling. Yes, but I'm sure that that is an in, that will be an indicator of of the economy and you know the shape of things to come. Perhaps, yeah. 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 What have you got, Heather? Well, um, a, a huge story that's been in that's been rolling around um, in the press is the whole story of Flybe, the airline oh, yeah. that's um, that's been in trouble, and the government has agreed a rescue plan. Uh, and the thing with Flybe is that it's considered it's not just another airline. It, it it's very much a local airline, and it does an awful lot to connect uh, within the UK. Within the yeah. UK, and that's the thing that um, it might be used to get you to where you need to be to get a flight out of the country, but also in terms of local, com- fairly localized commuting. Um, so, th- and it's usually business passengers that use that. So it, it does then have a big impact on the business. Yeah, because otherwise, community. if you want to get to Heathrow, you're going to have to drive or get or get a, a train, or, or, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah or, or a car, yeah, yeah, drive yeah or, or get whatever. A train. Um, now, of course, you know there is some controversy around this um, because um, you know there are people who are looking to this as some sort of bailout of a business that. You know, if it's not sustainable, it's not sustainable. And why should public funds be used uh, to bridge that gap? And we've, you know, we've had that with banking. The same could be said about bus routes as well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think it's very different to the to the banking crisis uh, because this is, um, you know, this has a. I think this does have a direct impact on people's ability to conduct conduct their mm. business and run their businesses efficiently and effectively. Uh, and of course, it's not a domestic thing. So you know, the masses, the, you know, the mass population will think, "Well, I never, you know, I don't do localized flying. So why are we chucking money at that?" And that's where that sort of contro- yeah. controversy sort of kicks in. So um, I think we need to watch this space uh, because they, it, it's it's a, it's a it's a debt, it's a tax debt that seems to be the the problem here. 
but that isn't going to go away on its own unless they start wiping out taxation. And if they start, I was listening to, to something the other day, you know, they're talking about the, the £13 or whatever it is, flight tax that each of us pays every time we get on a, a plane. Um, well, you couldn't, you couldn't remove that for Flybe and not remove it for other airlines. And if you stop getting Flybe to pay it, then surely they would need to stop charging the passenger it so yeah, it, it's it's quite complicated but I, I think it's it's a watch this space because I don't really know where this is going to go not an easy answer it's to, not an it? easy answer is it no no what else did you pick up on Tracy um so um a published report on ONS one of my favorite places it's a report into the value of ordinary shares held in UK incorporated companies that are listed on the stock exchange um and that are held, uh, who owns them, basically. And it's looking particularly at the geographical breakdown for shares owned outside the UK. So UK-listed companies and their shareholders are outside of the UK. And did you know that the the value of shares um, listed on the London Stock Exchange is £1.88 trillion at the end of 2018? And the proportion of UK UK shares held by the rest of the world has increased to a record high. It's now 54.9% of the value of the UK stock market market is held outside of the UK. By far the biggest place that holds um, UK shares is North America, then Europe and then Asia. But North America's got um, a whopping over 50% of that 54%. That's a really interesting stat, isn't it? That, yeah. So, well, and of course, it may. Then it. Then I want to know more about. You know, is it big? Is it big uh, IT companies that that attracts the the North American investment? What you know? What is it? I'd, I'd really like to start to look at well sectors. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of detail in there. So. Um, you, I've often seen like big insurance companies with with the shares in the markets, you know, so that you're funding pensions and things like that. Um, and they're, they're actually their share of the market has fallen um, since 2016. It's now only four percent. The big insurance companies only own four percent of the UK stock market, and other financial institutions, um, 8.1 percent of the shares. Uh, investment trusts only not point uh, sorry 1.4%. So it's uh, it's interesting. It is. Um the proportion of UK shares held by UK resident individuals yes is 13.5% which is higher than it was 10 years ago. Uh, which was at 10.2%. So 13.5% of UK individuals. Interesting stuff. You could delve into the data oh, yeah, way more. I'm just reading the headlines yeah, yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, I picked up on an article in the BB, uh, on the BBC um, some some guidance, some advice that has been issued by the Equality and Human Rights Commission around um, bullying and harassment at work. Uh, in particular, um, the the idea that social media posts which you know is increasingly a challenge i mean i know it's a massive thing in t- with with young people um and what people post about each other 
that it's now deemed that pub banter and social media posts could be classed as workplace harassment um, and that there are some <coughs> there's some guidance and some policies that um, that are, are are coming into into play, and the um, the ERHC has said that there's an overwhelming need for tougher action on harassment in the workplace. Um, if if you employ staff, you probably will be very aware of the different um, protected characteristics and what harassment is and what bullying is. Um, and, and if you're not, then I suggest that you get all over it uh, like a rat. It's often played down as banter. Well, yeah, we were having this conversation off air. Uh, you know, banter doesn't really exist because my banter is not the same as your banter. And it's often used as a, oh, it's only having a bit of banter when somebody has said something that actually could be quite offensive to to the individual that they've that they've said it to. So um, Even if they themselves haven't got that protected characteristic. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You can still yeah, find yeah. it offensive, yeah, yeah. even if it's not directly yes. aimed at them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, so as I say, um, something to to look at because if this if this gets some traction and becomes um, if there's new legislation that comes in, then we certainly need to all be aware of it. I'll put a link to that article uh, and all of the things that we've been talking about on today's show on our website, thebusiness.community. This is our discovery section of the show, and um, this is where we highlight things that we found out or, or fallen, happened upon during the week that you might be interested in. Now, I know that a number of you um, are freelancers, and um, so I've got a couple of things that you might find of interest. The first one is an event that Tracy and I are attending, which is taking place on the 25th of February. Uh, and it is uh, a talk by Aaron and Partners about the new rules around IR35. Um, this is the whole new legislation about if you are a contractor, are you a contractor or are you in actual fact employed by the organisation that you are providing services to? Uh, and we've talked in the past about uh, how this can impact very seriously on you as an individual. And there's a shift where the change is the change in emphasis is now going to be on the organisation that you are working for to prove that you are not an employee of theirs, which means that they are going to be looking to you to evidence comprehensively that you are not that they are not your only employer or your main employer. So, and then, of course, if you look at project-based work, you know how does that all work? So, this event is it's being organised by Aaron and Partners. It's a lunch. It's happening at um, the theatre in uh, Theatre Cluid. Uh, it's the twenty-fifth of February from twelve thirty to two thirty, and you can find details of that on Eventbrite. This is one of a series of um, events that the HR Lunch Club that Aaron's organise. Um, is is holding so i'll put a link to that on our on our website and then on the flip side of that then i came across a website this week called worksum.co.uk and this is where uh, organizations can find and hire contractors and where contractors freelance freelance contractors can find work um it it essentially it's a free service other than if you get a contract four percent of the fee goes to work some and if you get a contractor four percent of you pay four percent of the overall fee to work some so it's a sort of shared uh, but it but it looks interesting 
it looks like they've actually got some positions. You yeah. Know, sometimes you find these things. Empty. And it's like, yeah, but where is all the work? You know, what what is it? Uh, so I think it's one to to look at it links very well with linkedin so you can sign up um, and it will use your linkedin profile to seek oh, out good and re- make recommendation for potential um good fits so um so for the freelancers who who, who tune in and contractors there's a couple of things there that might be of interest to you and if you're an employer well again if you use um, intermittent contracting workers then uh, a couple of things that you probably need to check out what have you got tracy Another list. Oh, like in lists in 2020. 2020. Yeah, it feels like it's uh, the time for lists because this is a list of awards that you can apply for through the year. So it's got the whole year. It's a bit like last week we were looking at um, big dates through the year so yep. you can plan. Why not plan some activity around applying for some awards? You've got to be in it yes. to win it. Yeah. I found a great website. It's called awards-list.co.uk. Heather will put a link for that on our blog on the business.community. And what I thought was really useful is if you see awards that you're interested in, you can also sign up for deadline reminders. There's no charge for that. Um, presumably in exchange for that they've got your details yeah. on, yeah, on record yeah. but there's UK awards international awards and there's news about awards as well uh, so the organisation is called Boost I understand never heard of them before um, but they they do provide advice on writing um, bids for awards and strategies so it, it might be worth exploring that website anyway um, but if I just give you a, a little bit of uh, of a rundown of some of the things that I've seen on here you might be a, a little bit too late for the FSB celebrating small business awards because the deadline's tomorrow yeah um, and the profit track 100 and there's a couple of things I've never heard of before Deaf Business Awards. Sadly, the link to that one is is broken on the website. So I I went to have a look and see what that was all about. But um, I I didn't have time to Google it. So maybe do that. The National Family Business Awards. The deadline's the end of March. Um, There's the Best in Biz Awards International. The Forbes Global 2000. Ooh. So the world's largest companies awards. Um, There's the regulatory excellence awards if if that floats your boat and there's the sme national business awards so rural business awards um let's have a look the fortune global 500 awards telegraph trade awards all sorts of weird and wonderful things the business culture awards BCI Global Awards. So I, I think it's well worth taking a look at and, and we've we've talked about the value of um applying and, and entering yourself into awards in the past because people don't do it for you and that's you're not just given an award because somebody thinks well sometimes that happens but these types of business awards it's generally the businesses themselves, put themselves forward they put yeah. themselves forward and it's it's part of a marketing exercise really but also by actually going through the process of applying for the award and filling in the forms it helps you to look at your business as well. And it, it's a good reflective exercise to do. So even if you don't win, it, it won't do you any harm putting in a little bit of effort to, to see how you might um, benefit from the award. I think you learn a lot when you're considering your application about your own business. It reminds you of some of the things that you do well. Uh, and it also has a great morale boost for staff 
that you you know that we think we're good enough to put ourselves forward for an award. Yeah. So you used to um, be involved heavily in the best places to work. Best companies, yes. Best companies yeah, yeah, to work yeah. for. And and what sort of businesses would um, put themselves forward for those sorts of awards? Also, I mean, in in the days that I so it was in, in, at the in the early stage. I mean, now they have they have best large company. They have. Le- best um, public sector you know they, they do all sorts of things best charity etc but it, I mean it would be the biggies you know the likes of Microsoft Asda um, you know big companies uh, but then over time we'd start to get people who were um, housing associations and you know, smaller organizations and and on a local level I'm a member of Shropshire Chamber and they have their own local awards and you know v- micro businesses can enter and it, it it's just a great way I've got a client who wins an, quite a lot of awards who work in the travel industry uh, sector and if they get shortlisted that's something to be celebrated you know even if yeah. you don't win just to be and it's something to shout about it's something to talk about and it's reinforcing the quality of the work that you do. So go and take a look. Uh, the website, as I say, it will be put on our um, own blog and you can click through to there. And if you are entering an award or you, you've been shortlisted or you, you've won awards, let us know. We'd be really interested to know and we'll share your story on the show. On the business community this week, we're profiling one gentleman, but actually feels like we should be or are actually profiling four. So, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So um, the name that we pulled out the bag was Gopichand Hinduja. But actually, if you do a search for Hinduja, it always comes up with the Hinduja brothers. So Gopichand is one of four close-knit siblings, Shrichand, Gopichand, Prakash and Ashok. And they control the multinational conglomerate, the Hinduja Group which you may or may not have heard of. But um, if you cast, if you were born then, cast your mind back to 2001 and there was some political goings on with Peter Mandelson and Keith Vaz, etc. That might have been the, the first and only time you've heard of this Hinduja group. But they are massive. It, I mean, uh, he is, he, along with one of his brothers, is the richest person in the UK. Yeah. Right, so so many billions pounds wealth and you have to think well where on earth did all of that come from and these aren't this is big stuff they're involved yeah. in big well, diverse according, stuff according to forbes as of yesterday the brothers so this has been yeah. be the four of them <laughs> they don't break it down into each individual but between them they're worth four, uh, 16.1 billion dollars that's an estimate. Yeah. Because one of the things about conglomerates is it's really difficult to get to the detail. What is the definition of a conglomerate then? A conglomerate is a combination of multiple business entities. So it's lots of businesses, in com- usually in completely different industries, and they're all under the umbrella of a group. Okay. So the Hinduja group has got a lot of individual companies. So the Hinduja group is the parent company and then lots of different subsidiaries in lots of different industries. They're often large and they more often than not are multinational as well. So examples in the UK, um, um, Virgin Group's a conglomerate, um, Rio Tinto Group, Johnson Mathy, things you might have heard of, Imperial Tobacco, BHP Billiton, um, the Cooperative Group. And there are lots more, but, you know, they're some of the big names I was looking for. So the sorts of things that the Hinduja group are involved in 
um, trucks, lubricants. They've got a bank. They've got their own bank for their own businesses. <laughs> when you've got that much money, where are you going to put it? You need a bank. Uh, don't they're you? in media, you know, television. So uh, real estate. They've got hotels. You know something about um, some real estate they've got in London as well? Yeah, um, they they acquired the Churchill War Office buildings, which you know is a prime piece of real estate with great. Um, historical and architectural importance for the country, not just for that part of London. Um, and they are converting it into flats and offices. And they're going to uh, there's going to be a Raffles Hotel. So you've heard of Raffles in Singapore. Well, there's going to be one in London. Um, and I watched an, a Bloomberg interview with um, Gopi Chand, and uh, he, he talked about he wanted to do this. And he wanted to open it as a peace building rather than a war office. And I thought nice that was touch. a really nice touch. And it that sort of played into some of the um, some of the values of the individual. He talks a lot about, I mean, he's a workaholic. He and his brothers are all workaholics, apparently. It comes from their father. He gets up at 4.45 every morning Ooh. and he does yoga. He likes, um, he if he's got a decision to make, he likes walking meetings. So he likes to walk around St. James's Park. He lives very close to St. James's Park. He will take somebody out. Um, if, you know, you'd come and see him. He'd say, right, let's walk. You'd walk for 45 minutes. You'd discuss. You might make some decisions. Then you go and have a cup of coffee. Sounds very healthy to me. So, so yeah. So he's, he, Apart from the getting up at 4.45. Yes, <laughs> yes. But there's quite a spiritual side yeah. to this individual. Um, but one of the things I thought was really interesting is, he, he likes solving problems, right? He loves a challenge. Anything that's a challenge. If somebody says you can't do it, he wants to do it. Um, but he doesn't believe in using experts for certain things because they are often fixed on the process, whereas he likes people to think creatively and outside of the box, as they say, and come up with different solutions because he doesn't believe that just because you know about something, that's the best way to do it. But then he went on to say that he thinks that... Um, Although he doesn't have a pilot's licence, he knows enough about how aeroplanes work and how you drive an aeroplane that he could probably fly one. <laughs> now, I'm not sure I'd want to be getting on that flight with him, but if that's what he, you know, it's a great confidence. It's quite a bullish yeah. approach, isn't it? You don't want to get onto a plane with a pilot who goes, I could probably fly this. I can probably <laughs> win this, yeah, literally. So, But an interesting character. And so it was quite nice to see, although the, the video, the interview was very long and he talks very, very slowly. So it was, you know, it was quite a lot of time investment. Probably could have done a 28-minute interview in 15. Um, but very interesting. So I had a look at how the business started and, and these are the, the the sort of things that like, how do you get from nothing to $16 billion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the empire was actually started by their father that you mentioned, Parmanand Deepand Hinduja. He traded goods in India. Uh, it's part of India that's now Pakistan. And then they moved to Iran in 1919. And then the Hinduja brothers actually moved from Iran to London uh, with the business in 1979. So time has got a big part yes. to play in yeah. in the growth of this business. What I really thought was interesting was that the Hinduja Group website actually has some of this history on there. And it's got a, a quote from the founder, Parmanand, the father. And he says that my dharma, which means duty, is to work so I can give. Yeah. And the principles of the company are stated on the website as work to give, 
Work is a Bond, Act Local, Act Local Think Global, Partnership for Growth and Advance Fearlessly. I've heard worse um, company values than that. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 they, and they don't just say that. They, they actually do quite a lot of uh, philanthropic stuff. So, they, you know, they do give money. Um, yes, they've got a lot for themselves or great wealth. But, of course, with that comes they must employ an awful lot of people. They must have to jump through an awful lot of hoops, some of the areas that they work in. I think I read somewhere it's in a region of 70,000 people around the world. I mean, incredible. Yeah, yeah. But a name that I'd never heard of until I saw that he was the richest man. And, um, yeah. Amazing what a bit of research can do for you. Thank you, Heather. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. But we do hope you'll join us again next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. 